Well, welcome to another roundtable discussion on West Virginia Beer Roads. Today's topic is legislation. And I uh, have several roundtable members here today. A uh, couple from last time, my co-host, Aaron McCoy. Hello, hello. Got uh, Jack of all trades in alcohol, Rob Abston. Ahoy, ahoy. <laughs> And a new member today on our legislative panel here, got Chuck Johnson from uh, Frost Brown Todd. Brown Todd. That's a law firm here in town. You can tell us a little bit about your what you do there. Glad to be here. I do a little bit of craft beer law and help uh, cideries, breweries, distilleries get set up and with their regulatory issues. Yeah. Well, at least uh, Chuck... Me and uh, Rob, we've all worked on different aspects of legislation in the past. And, um, but today, we don't really want to talk about the history. We want to talk about where we are today. And I think kind of first, as I put a little agenda together, which always helps me, I wanted to go over a little of the current state of affairs and have each of us tell what we think is actually good about our current alcohol regulations and and laws. So, Rob, you want to start one? <laughs> well, allowing breweries to self-distribute to a certain level is always nice. There are some states that prohibit self-distribution entirely, and that is something that those those states have looked at us and say, that's a great idea. Um, you know, we, it, we got it squeezed in a few years ago, and it's been uh, it's a big success. If you're not of a certain size, and so far nobody in West Virginia has hit the limit that disqualifies them, you can if you elect to self-distribute, and you, you can actually pick and choose markets you can self-distribute in, which is always a, a nice thing. I think one of the things I like about the current law is we just increased the alcohol by volume amount to 15%. And so prior to this, we missed out some of the out-of-state beers, and local craft breweries couldn't make anything above 12.0. And now we can have up to 15.0. I just had the Lunar Pastry last night, and it's 12.0, but it could have been disallowed before if it was 12.05. Yeah, and that's a Lunar Pastry Stout from Big Temper. Yes, and it's excellent. Yeah. Hopefully that will bring the the big one into the market that uh, was mentioned a bit previously, the Bourbon Canley brand, and some variants from them. That I know everybody would like to have. Absolutely. Yeah. So that uh, increase to the 15% level really has helped the overall market a bit here and there anyway, at least around the edges. I guess that's a high proof edge. But um, other good things that I'd throw out, um, one would be the unlimited, more or less unlimited licenses we have for most things except liquor stores. Does that uh, ring anybody's chimes? Uh, I think it helps you know, make uh, beer and spirits and everything else more available because we can have, they don't have to limit the number of bars or restaurants that can sell beer. They don't limit the number of grocery stores or even other stores that can sell beer. It's a very positive thing. And I think it, along with that goes the inexpensive licenses for like a tavern uh, or a retailer, you know, to sell beer. Those are seems like very positive things. Yeah, one hundred fifty dollars for a tavern license is fantastic. That's a great price. Yeah, it does. And uh, also, 
the relatively inexpensive licenses for uh, breweries, wineries, distilleries in the state. And if you want to open one, the license fee, if you think the license fees are too high, you're probably in the wrong business. <laughs> I think that's right. They're really not something that should stop anyone, a $500 a year brewery license fee, at least for the state part. Well, and we eliminated the bond requirement, so that's good. And we've sort of expanded some of the tasting opportunities. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And uh, talking about tasting, uh, how about the, the free samples that are now legal in the state? Also at growling stations, in addition to just the brewery itself. So explain that one. You're able to have, we believe, up to three samples at a, a growler station. If you want to try something before you commit to purchasing it, you can try it right yeah. there at the growling station. Yeah, that is good because uh, they're an off-premise retailer, which normally don't allow any consumption at all of any sort on the premises. And the law now allows them to do a little limited sampling, uh, which is, is great. And that really helps. I think the... The whole aspect of of where we are, you know, there. I don't want to overlook that we're not all bad in this state. You know, we do have some very positive uh, things about our laws, but us as critics and as industry observers, you know, we're also always kind of looking at the other side too. Well, I wish we could do this, or wish we could do that. Anything uh, stand out to you guys from that? Rob, you got to? <laughs> All right. Yeah, our Constitution's stupid. Uh, we still have that prohibitionist uh, language in the Constitution that prohibits the sale of alcoholic liquors within the state of West Virginia, which is, of course, re- means we have to have the private club fiction to get a, a bar that ser- serves liquor. You have to have beer is quote non-intoxicating which is why it's in the tax code as opposed to being in like an alcohol control section um you could just go on so many of the problems we have with our actual code stem from the fact that our constitution on this particular issue um is antebellum it needs to go away this is this it's garbage and we need a constitutional amendment that just eliminates that provision entirely and just says something to the effect of State of West Virginia shall regulate the import, manufacture, distribution, retail sale, and consumption of alcoholic beverages. Yeah. And that would cover the whole thing. Yeah. It's certainly something that uh, we're, I don't know, Chuck, you may have looked at this before, but is this something that most states do not have that type of language in their state constitution? I think that's right. And it was probably an overreaction during Prohibition. It was never removed, but... I don't think there would be any objection to making that change. It's just the process. And there's only 17 territories and states in the United States that actually control alcohol sales as in the state of West Virginia, like we do, as far well, as I'm aware. Well, that's for distilled spirits and, yeah, it's spiritus liquors and right. wine. Uh, that's true. Uh, yeah, that's another question that's beyond the Constitution because you could still have a control state. That's what we call that, like Ohio, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Virginia, North Carolina, all around us, except for Kentucky and Maryland. But even in Maryland, it's Montgomery County is control. Uh, you could still have that. I mean, that's our, our Constitution, though, is the thing that, like it, 
it does make us have that non-intoxicating beer fiction to uh, to have a beer, our whole beer laws based on. I had to explain to a legislator one time. He questioned me whether you could get intoxicated on non-intoxicating beer, and I had to sort of walk him through that in an awkward way. But yes, that is very awkward the way the and law is. There is a Supreme Court case directly on point that says that it's it. Yeah, just because it says non-intoxicating doesn't mean you can't get drunk off of it. Yeah. Yeah, so anyway, that whole Constitution thing needs to be modernized and get us in line with almost probably every other state in the Union. That It just, it just makes us, it would make writing alcohol laws so much cleaner and better and, you know, it would allow you to really streamline so much and get things uh, to, to 21st century kind of standards rather than being stuck in 1933. Well, and probably the application process along with it. I mean, we've got very good people at the ABCA, but when people apply for a uh, a brew pub license or some of the other licenses, the forms are very complicated and it takes a lot of effort and it's a multi-step process once they get it correct. So if you go to Ohio or Virginia, they have a one-sheet form you fill out and check which license you want and you submit your fee. And then you have to comply with all the regulations, of course, but it's easy. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I just think that we're reluctant to make change because we, we need to look at what the ramifications are. And I think there's a better way to do it, but maybe we can work on that. Right. Yeah, it, certainly control. I mean, the state's not going to get out of controlling, like Rob said, he'd rewrite the Constitution uh, piece, but it would be still that the state would regulate the, the license and license the production and sale of, of alcoholic beverages but it would it could uh it just it could be so different and more streamlined uh i think and get because we've had this law that's pieced together so many times since the original concept and that constitutional amendment is where the whole concepts grow and the non-intoxicating beer laws i mean those are from the 1930s and they've the whole business of an industry has changed, and even public thinking on alcohol has changed, even in this state, a lot since 1930. Definitely think, in this state, a lot. I think maybe if we made it easier to bring in out-of-state, import out-of-state craft beers, it might be a, a, a very helpful. Right now, our process is very... It takes a lot of steps. It takes... a some monetary, uh, uh, you know, you have to put down a significant fee, and you got to go through enough steps that we're the last state to get some of these craft beers, virtually. Because our our laws are so much more complex than the surrounding law or states. Yeah, and our market's not big enough to make it obviously that that's uh, worthwhile to some of these uh, uh, right. places. So, yeah, I think that is true. Um, you know, we're. Uh, we're a small market, so if you have high hurdles to overcome, it's going to hurt competition. Uh, but at the same time, that probably may work in the favor of your local, locally owned breweries and wineries and things. <laughs> yeah, protectionism is always a, you know, a great thing for the local guys. It's just not good for the consumer, and it's not good for anybody else. Yeah. Well, I think some of the craft breweries wouldn't mind it. I mean, if you go to a bottle store or um, a beer, craft beer bar, and they have the out-of-state hot beer, but then you can get the Big Timber and the Greenbrier right. Valley and Weathered Ground, you're going to buy more beer. Yeah, hopefully. I don't, I don't, right, I don't think that 
those restrictions right now or the, the difficulty of entry into West Virginia, there are a few that won't jump that hurdle. But again, given our market size, I don't know how many of those would actually sell in the state anyway. Don't you think that most of the beers that would sell well in the state are already here? Mostly, probably. But it would still be nice to for somebody to come in. Right. Or the one thing that's been brought up by a number of retailers, for example, to me, is they would like the ability, particularly if you're running a festival or a one-day event, to have, say, a one-day import license where you, somebody pays $50 or something like that. Let, let's say let's take Brewery, let's say Wolf's Ridge, just pick a name. Um, big presence in Columbus. Um, let's say we wanted to have, they wanted to have a Wolf Ridge party in Huntington to judge whether or not it's worth expanding into this market or not. Was it worth paying the, the $1,000 fee to get into it because their production level is now high enough to like tip that, tip that number um, up from 500. Uh, if they wanted to do that, they really just have to go all in. They can't just, they can't, come in for like one day and see what the what the reception would be like or if you're running a festival and you want to have like one keg from one place that's not licensed here if you're running a barley wine festival but there are only four that are available in the state and you want to bring in like say three others there should be a mechanism in place where you could do that you would pay the taxes on it um, so the state would get their taxes and you would pay a, a, some sort of nominal fee of $25 or $50 to allow the the product to come in for one day or just for this one specific event. And that would be it. Um, yeah, other I've, states do that. Other states do that. Yeah. Exactly. And, it, and they haven't had all kinds of earthquakes and things because they did that. I mean, it wasn't like it ruined the, their state. Yeah. I mean, if you're in Pennsylvania and you want to bring in a beer from West Virginia, you can. And occasionally they do. Yeah. Um, if you're in Morgantown and you want to bring in something from Pittsburgh that's not available in West Virginia, you are just SOL. Yeah, so let's talk about, uh, that brings us to retail because uh, uh, beer festivals are retailers under the law. Uh, what other kinds of things, are there other things retailers need to have more flexibility? Anything? <laughs> well, so retailers I, I mean, are I, in pretty good shape. They're doing, they're a lot better. They've got a lot more choice available to them. Um, the retailers that I've worked with and talked to about this, they would just like the flexibility of being able to bring some things in occasionally, like special stuff like that. Do you think things in our growler filling stations or growler laws, is, is it okay today? Or are there other things that could improve it? They've improved tremendously over the past few years. Yeah. Um, one annoying part to me is that label they stick on so many places that screw up your, uh, your right. I know. And that's not the case everywhere. That's not going to go anywhere, unfortunately. <laughs> I, I've, I've talked to too many legislators who, who just insist that that, need, that Surgeon, war Surgeon General's warning needs to be on every package, period. Yeah. And doesn't matter if it's going to go to a sticker on your nice new Hydro Flask, it's going to go. Yeah, I hear you. And the fact it's sealed just to protect everybody. Oh, right. God. Right. Yeah, the, 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 the seal. An approved yeah. upon seal. Yeah, that, that's different, too. A lot of states don't have that requirement. It's because it's not. not necessary. Yeah, it isn't necessary. How about for uh, wholesalers, uh, well, beer and wine? Oh, okay. Let me mention something for sure. retailers. I mean, we, we talked about maybe the tasting... Um, laws being liberalized, but they're really no parity. For example, if you, uh, a beer manufacturer can't go and do a tasting at a Kroger's or 
at that kind of retail place while someone that's selling liquor or wine can. Right. You know, and, uh, you know, some yeah, of we it. Yeah, definitely. That would be. And another related thing is you mentioned, you know, if you work for a, a brewer or a distributor at, you can't have anything to do with the retail end at all when you get right down to it. So yeah. if you're at a festival, you might have the representative directly from Devil's Backbone standing right there who could tell you everything about the beer, but the one thing she can't do is actually hit, touch the tap yeah. and pour any out. Yeah, that's true. We specifically uh, prohibit those kinds of act- activities by uh, brewery representatives or employees. Um, again, other states, some do, but a lot don't. So boy, it would be nice. I think we're a little hung up on this whole idea of what might be inducement. Like that you can't touch, uh, you know, if you're a manufacturer, you can't touch the retailer's stuff, you know. Well, and well that's the tier system, is it not? Yeah, it's the, really out the of three, date. Yes. Totally out the of three-tier date. three-tier concept. Yep. It may be that they're trying to make sure that the distributors aren't hurt in the whole transaction, you know, that they have to go through them. But uh, uh, there's probably still a way to fix that without hurting the distributors. I yeah, think. it's just that... Brewery reps ought to be able to, to be more free to do promotional work out in licensed retailers. Well, you know, if you have a small charitable special event license, you can imagine that having the uh, brewer rep there to pour beers and explain it would be very nice with a smaller event. And, mm-hmm. you know, as long as you go through the distributor to get your beer, right. there should be no right. harm. And, and you do everything correctly, of course. Exactly. Well, that's a, that's a good point. Those are things that would be nice to be able to go into a Kroger and see have beer samplings in there. I'm not saying Kroger would want to do it, but it doesn't force them to do it. But anybody, any retailer would like to, it'd be nice to have that option if it was legal. And I think for like for the wine shop, they can do a, a beer event adjacent to their premises, but they can't do a wine tasting on their premises. That is true. And, and again, I, I know... We're being very protective, but that seems like something we ought to be able to do to have some parity. I got another one here. Um, the um, requirement that licensees, that somebody on the license has to be a West Virginia resident. That uh, For a retailer? For uh, Yeah, for, for certain types of licenses, like okay. a private club license particularly is the one right. that stands out. Right. And uh, we least, you know, recently here in the Canal Valley lost uh, a beloved institution in Galaxy Lanes because they wanted to have a liquor license, which was what was going to give them the necessary income stream to keep the place open. And because the last member of the Schoenbaum family, you know, the, one of the most prominent families in the state of West Virginia, the Schoenbaum Center, Schoenbaum Field, Schoenbaum, you know, yeah, everything, sure. Shoney's. Um, the last member left the state, therefore they could no longer have a, a, a private club license. I think she passed away. Wasn't that Betty Schoenbaum was the yeah. last one here? And yeah. the last heir, none of the heirs were in the yeah, state. Yeah, and none were there. And uh, because that, of that... And I think you're talking about Venture Lanes. What did I say? Galaxy. galaxy. You Lunch, said Galaxy uh, Lanes. But, I, but I may have some news on this front. You know, we had the U.S. Supreme Court strike down Tennessee's laws as it relates to wine retail. And that's binding. what happened there. Well, the Tennessee laws had to have, you had to be a resident for two years to get the license. And then to renew it, you had to be a resident for 10 years. So (laughs) if you add that up, you have to be a 12-year resident in the state of Tennessee for that particular license, which seemed a bit 
onerous and perhaps discriminatory. So to make a long story short, as it went up to the United States Supreme Court, they recently struck that down. And I think the state of West Virginia in the last special session recognized they need to fix this. And so they tried to do it. It didn't pass. Currently, under the medical cannabis laws, they're not enforcing that on their application if you go to the website. And I believe, I may be wrong, but I believe the ABCA is open to a fix to that issue because, you know, they have to comply with the U.S. Supreme Court case. Yeah, that's true. And what Rob was saying there on on private clubs uh, owners, that also is brewers, applies to all the manufacturers, too. Yes. At least that's the way they enforce it. We have to have a West Virginian on the on your corporation to be the licensee type person. Well, and for a corporation, you have limitations on how much a non-resident owner can own. And if you're a family operation, you can have a brother and sister that one's out of state and one's in state, and the other one can't own more than, you know, yeah. 20%. And, and you know, in these days, that's that's very difficult to make things work sometimes. I know, for example, there are farm wineries that that's presenting issues for. Right. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't understand that. I don't quite know where that came from historically, but I don't want to get into the history except that it could, it should be changed. Yeah, that's just classic protectionism right there. It was yeah. like, you know, if, if you ain't from West Virginia, you ain't getting a license. Right. Well, our system is so similar that it's probably not enforceable anymore. And, and so rather than have people challenge the current law, I'm hoping that the ABCA will maybe see uh, see through a fix maybe this year. We'll just have to wait and see. So I, I'm going to skip over the uh, wholesalers. I think, I don't know, that, you know, we can speak a whole lot on, on beer and wine wholesalers. We don't have really liquor wholesalers because it's the state of West Virginia is the only liquor wholesaler. Uh, I mean, the one thing that I will throw out here, and you guys know this, that a lot of states have a, uh, uh, I mean, a lot of states that even have franchise laws for their breweries that require them to, to sign a franchise agreement with a, a wholesaler. They allow uh, uh, an easier mechanism for small breweries. Either they're exempt from that if you're under a certain amount of barrels per year, or there's a real easy out if you're in it to change, uh, you know, your wholesaler from one to another. And if you're a small, uh, again, a small brewery, not for larger breweries. To me, that's something that would be nice to see and make it a lot more flexible uh, for our little brewers in West Virginia as well. But. I think that's right. And, you know, some of the smaller craft brewers have always said, gosh, we can't get rid of self-distribution. That that allows us to set up these small, uh, you know, uh, craft breweries to expand. And then if you're not very sophisticated and you get into some very restrictive distribution agreements early on and you're small, it can almost drive you out of business if they don't handle your product in a way that you can make money. Yeah, and we've had distributors in the state that are very reasonable and have basically given back rights in, in a few cases, and that I commend them for that. But then you have others that probably won't. We've had some recently who have held on to licenses specifically out of spite. We're not going to, we're not going to sell your stuff and we're not going to give you your rights back. Yeah. But you look at it from their standpoint. They, they're trying to protect their livelihood. I so understand. maybe Charles has a good idea there to have some kind of de minimis that if they're not selling X dollars or X percent of your beer, then, then you have an ability to terminate that. Sure. And, and, you know, we'll have to see if that would be controversial. Well, that moves us over to the brewers. Um, there's a few things I know they're very interested yeah. in. 
legislatively always. Um, I, I think I heard from uh, Ken Lynch at, uh, down in Fayetteville. Uh, he told me that one thing he was very interested in, I think a lot of the brewers, is, and I think Chuck might have mentioned this earlier, about lowering the amount of paperwork or the difficulty of paperwork. Maybe, Chuck, you could address that a little bit more specifically from a brewer's sense. Yeah, you know, if they, one is the pricing updates is done quarterly, and when they're doing specialty beers and one-offs, that's very difficult to do in a, a price adjustment every quarter when your beers may rotate sooner than that. So that would take a lot of planning, and it's uh, very difficult to make that work for a small yeah. brewery. Um, I think the licensing applications, we, we talked about that a bit, streamlining yeah. that. And that's one helpful. thing Ken Lynch mentioned was definitely the, the actual uh, you know, license of applications and I guess whatever updates you might have to do when you change things. Yeah, I think like if you look at Ohio and Virginia applications, you have a one-page form and you check out the application you want and you submit it with your fee. It doesn't diminish the regulations you have to comply with. It you know, off-premises tap rooms or tasting rooms if you're a winery would be a fantastic addition. And I think there's probably not a single brewer out there that wouldn't be in favor of something like that. That way you could put your production facility in a cheaper part of town with cheaper real estate, um, maybe easier at, you know, it's a lot easier to back a truck up to a warehouse than it is to back a truck up to right outside of, of black sheep, for example, bad shepherd. Um, and then they could then have their tap room inside the town. So they wouldn't have to worry about, you know, having placing the, the, the large production facility in the high dollar area of town real estate wise. Yeah. Again, there are a lot of states, I think California, which has been very successful in the create, creating small breweries out there, they do allow about maybe three or four, I forget, there's a some limit on it, but they'll allow uh, remote locations for tasting rooms for, for breweries. Yeah, and I think if we did that, it, it shouldn't impose any more problems than, you know, right now there's certain breweries and wineries and cideries that may decide not to do a tasting room because they can't make it work in their current location. Right. And they can't make a profit. They're losing right. money doing that, even though they'd like to do that for their customers. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like Rob said, a lot of them want to put their brewery out in a, in a lower rent area. But uh, the little tasting room that they could put together, if they could do one in downtown Charleston, you know, that's where it might be happening, you know. So. And if you want to limit that to the same county, that's fine as far as I'm concerned. Uh, some people would like to have two or three tasting rooms that you can locate in good places throughout the state. Yeah, I, I, and and for those, I don't because we have unlimited retail licenses anyway. Like you know, tavern licenses. Hey, they could pay an extra 150 bucks or a fee or something like that for each of them and be just on par with any other tavern in the state. Where uh, I would think, you know, it shouldn't be an issue for anyone. Just have an add-on license and make it easy again. Yeah. The, the laws would be the same as we're currently doing it. It would just be facilitate them doing their yeah. their tasting room. But, you know, it, again, Robin and Chuck, you guys comment on this one. Our current law, I do believe, says something like uh, you can only be licensed in one capacity if you're a brewer. So you can't be a wholesaler and you can't be a retailer. But then they go on and let you do all that. So why do how... I mean, how does this get written into code, and, and how do you change that? 
Well, it is very confusing, especially for the people trying to do this. Um, you know, a, a, a brew pub is a hybrid license. It's a manufacturer, yeah. it's uh, on-premises consumption, and they can do self-distribution. So it's sort of in all three tiers. But those other laws that say you can't be in the other tiers still exist. Yeah. And that's, again, where this, uh, you're talking about a fundamental, complete rewrite of the whole, uh, the whole sections of code, uh, probably, or what the only thing that would solve those. Chuck, something I know we've talked about in the past is uh, that, that apparently the statute seems to say that a person can only have one brewery license. Not only you have to be a West Virginia resident, but you can only own one brewery. You can't have two breweries in different towns, for instance, or a chain of brew pubs in this state. I think some people aren't aware that if you look at all the statutes and put them all together, that that's what our laws say, one site, one license. Yeah. And then we find ways of adjusting to that rather than just fixing it. It doesn't seem to be a problem to have more than one manufacturing site for a brewery, to right. me. I mean, I'm sure other kinds of manufacturing facilities, if they want to expand in the state, we're anxious to let them do that. Mm -hmm. And uh, as long as we can do it safely and, and regulate it, you know, I think we should be allowing that. And uh, hopefully we'll, maybe we should have a dialogue with the ABCA and try to see if that can work. Now let's go uh, to another nice growing small manufacturing business, and that's distilleries. We're starting to see even around Charleston a couple pop up here. Yes, I was able to talk with Ty Bullock of uh, Bullock the Bullock Distillery and his partners, and he brought up some good points. Uh, the first being the difference between the fee being a mini distillery is uh, a $50 fee versus a distillery, which is a $1,500 fee. That's uh, quite a difference. It's an annual fee, so imagine that adds up over time. Um, a mini distillery is, of course, defined as a distillery that an establishment that makes no more than 20,000 gallons of alcoholic liquor manufactured with no less than 25% of raw agricultural products being produced by the owner on site. Yeah, that, that makes it tough, doesn't it? That makes it very tough. And I'm uh, not sure we have many that can really comply with that. And so he must allow a lot of flexibility there. Well, that's what he, that was the point that he was trying to make. You know, it makes it very difficult for any kind of a distillery being in the city to actually produce their product <laughs> at their premise. No and, kidding. <laughs> and pushes distilleries out to farm lands and, in, in effect, keeps them from being in the city. The land's not available to farm. Right. Um, certainly that's something that they would like to see change. I, I can completely agree with that. It makes it difficult, especially in Charleston, for instance, where they're, you know, I see no real farmland right in the city of Charleston. So certainly it makes it hard to do 25% of your own product. Um, and, and having said that, something else came up. Well, if you were able to find the land to be able to farm your own product, what happens if you have a bad year as far as weather, if weather, um, you know, destroys your crops or an act of God? Do you have to, do you lose your license? Do you have to pay the fee again, reapply for your license? That, so what's the no, fix? Well, that's just it. That was the question oh, yeah. um, that they had. Is there a fix? There's actually nothing written in the code that says if you lose your yeah. uh, your raw material, you're not protected from that. The and, fix just needs to be something like they've done in breweries, where if you're a small brewery, you get a, a cheaper license. You get less restrictions, in a sense. Uh, if you're a small winery it's somewhat similar if you're a small distillery 
Maybe it just needs to be on size and shouldn't be tied to the growing your own uh, ingredients. That requirement should be completely eliminated. Yeah. And maybe you could adjust the uh, sizes to make that work of yeah. what you can do. And I know for wineries, we had a couple that went out of business because they they lost their crop in a bad winter. And there's a couple. There's, yeah, that's got to be addressed. I mean, certainly you can't have a perfect crop every season. Yeah. That's just impossible. But for grapes, you lose your vines. You're, you're dead for a while unless you plant new vines. But right. for, you know, it just doesn't make sense for distilleries. Of yeah. And for distilleries, I know they have an issue, too, on the marketing side, a big one, these little distilleries that, because it's under the state control and the state liquor, well, the state wholesale of liquor, everything has to go through that to get to a retailer, to get to a bar or a restaurant, has to go through the state system. And right. the, unlike a brewery that can, and a winery that can both directly sell their product if they don't go through distributor, they can directly sell to a retailer. So little tiny startup distilleries probably need that same option to sell a certain amount of product yes, direct that, to a to a retailer. Which was something else that, you know, came up as an example, say one of the local restaurants near where the uh, Bullock distillery is going to be built, you know, if they want to purchase the, their liquor from them, they're not able to do that. They have to sell it to the state who then would turn around and sell it to that restaurant. It just seems incredibly inefficient and circular. And it, well, if you'll remember, the Bloomery raised that uh, oh, yes. and, and tried to get some fix yes. there to help them stay in business, and right. that was an issue with them. Now, it's a very complicated scheme. Once you add on all your costs and all the way up the tier, it'll be interesting to see if you can compete with the uh, out-of-state uh, bourbons and, and, yeah. and uh, moonshine at that point. Well, I, I don't know what all states do, and that, that it does vary a lot from state to state, but Ohio just this summer started allowing their small distilleries, low Ohio distilleries, to, within limits, do direct sales to retail in their areas. So it, it can work, and those guys over there are very excited about that, the distilleries. Uh, another issue that was raised was uh, regarding market zone payments. And, you yeah, know, at 2%, that's a tough one. Yeah, that's a tough one. And it's a technical one, too. Again. I understand that, yeah. that's that, And market zone payments are... Uh, payments that a dis distillery has to make, in a sense, back to the market in their pricing, I guess. Well, they remit it to the ABC. It's yeah. the 2% Well, because fee. that's the market. Yeah, yes. It's a m that's, monopoly. That's tacked on to yeah. their price that they have to then send to the ABC that then sends it to their market zone. And that protects the retailers who bid big money on those limited number of liquor stores. Yet don't carry the distillery's product. It's <laughs> They're literally getting paid it's a not racket. to sell their, their product. <laughs> that's true. It that's what they all say. Yeah. Well, I understand that. I mean, you can't make a, a retailer handle a particular product or not. I mean, it's hard to dictate that. But to add that fee to something that doesn't even get sold uh, very much in the retail. Yeah, that, that's something that most states do not have that. But when that law passed, and Chuck, you may remember, Rob, back in the late 90s when that came up, the retailers were very strong. They were organized in a kind of an association and were very adamant about wanting to be protected against direct sales from distilleries that would take over the market and, and, and kind of bypass the liquor stores that you know, who paid, again, big fees to uh, get that liquor license. Well, we're going through the bidding process now, and I wonder what would happen if we uh, didn't limit that. What would happen to the market? I'm not sure it'd be a bad thing. We'd just have to, you know, I think I we're think not open. I don't think it'd be a bad thing either. 
So I don't want to leave off the winery side, and that includes cideries, meaderies. Anybody have a, a, some things there that would be good you'd love to see happen to change our laws on that end? I do know that there is one cidery that has some issues with the non-resident requirements, and hopefully, again, that fix will be made, or you know, that's just limiting their ability to have a, a family have even investment in the in the business. Mm-hmm. Uh, so hopefully, that'll work. Um, I think the one thing the wineries do uh, feel is that, uh, relative to breweries, that they're taxed a little too high. I'm not saying they are, but I don't know. Is that, well, have a thought on that? yeah, I mean, I guess if you're selling cider in a large bottle, you're taxed just like it's wine. It is wine. Mm-hmm. But you're competing sometimes with the beer market and the craft beer market as far as who buys your product. So there's a little bit of a disconnect there when you're the yeah. consumer. You yeah. know, you're not going to pay so much for a bottle of cider that... You know, if it prices out of the market, that's a bad thing. Right. Yeah, I've heard that a lot from people who are like, you know, I, this, I have this cider at a festival, and I think it's great. And they go down to Drug Emporium, and it's $17.99 a bottle. And I don't know how much of that is taxed, but a significant amount of that is actual tax. And it could be lowered if they weren't paying an, that obscene level of taxation, which I, I agree yeah. with. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's true that each class of, of alcoholic products, so whether it be distilled spirits, wines, or, or beers, are all taxed and based so differently. Yeah, so differently. Beer's always had a bit of an advantage because it was kind of like the common man's beverage, and they, the, even the federal taxes were always lower on beer, I think. And we're starting to see, you know, cideries and wineries do use in-state agricultural products. And sure. And breweries are starting to do that, and maybe mm-hmm. we'll get some local malt and, and, and local products for the beer, and that's going to be uh, even more positive for the state. All right. Anybody else uh, have a, a wrap-up of any sort? Anything you want to throw back out? Priorities or anything else? Not here. Well, I guess we've covered legislation this year, 2020. Um, we'll be... Uh, Writing this little summary up, too, we'll be doing an article uh, for Brilliant Stream as well uh, on just the high points of this discussion in a a much shorter version. So, guys, uh, Rob, Chuck, Aaron, thank you very much for being here today, participating in this West Virginia Beer Roads Roundtable on legislation. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you.